If you would, take your Bibles and open to Hebrews chapter 10. Um, This is sort of a red herring, though, because we're going to be looking at a lot of passages before we come to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, So bear with me. This past week and continuing into this week, we've been reading through the book of Leviticus as we as a congregation seek to read through the Bible this year. As I mentioned last Sunday, one commentator on Leviticus wrote, the book of Leviticus, more than any other biblical book, has kept readers from getting to the biblical books that follow it. It's In the words of the spiritual, it's too high, you can't get over it, too low, you can't get under it, too wide, you can't get around it. It just seems so unwieldy. It was my hope that the sermon last Sunday would encourage you and also give you some things to think about as you're reading through Leviticus. I'd like to continue in that vein today. I hadn't planned to, but I I think I'd like to do that, beginning with a brief re- review and then go, from, go on from there. There are two principles that we need to keep in mind when reading, I would say, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first is, you become like what you worship. Worship is acknowledging the worth of something or someone, recognizing and saying that something or someone is worthy of praise, and celebrating the worth of someone or something that is far superior to oneself. See, if you worship something that is greater than yourself, you ascribe worth to it, why wouldn't you want to become like that thing? Obviously, you have set it higher than yourself, and so you aspire to be like the thing that you worship. Otherwise, why would you worship? But secondly, in worshiping God, one becomes more human. We are made in the image of the Creator, and when we worship Him, we ascribe to Him great worth, and we get our identity from Him, and thus we become more human. But, uh, N.T. Wright has noted that perhaps one of the reasons why so much worship, in some churches at least, appears unattractive to many people, is that we have forgotten or covered up the truth about the one we are worshiping. Simply put, we don't want to be like him because our vision of God is really skewed, is really messed up. We don't know who God is, but it is in scripture that we come to learn of who God is, what his attributes are, what his character is. That's why we are to read and study the scriptures. The scriptures are a revelation. They reveal to us who God is. With that in mind, Let's consider reading through Exodus and Leviticus. We mentioned this last week. First of all, it is the Lord who determined how the Israelites were to worship him, and his instructions were not arbitrary, though they may seem so to us. Remember, God created us, and the Creator instructs his creatures how they are to worship him. And by the way, I think that all creation sings God's praises, each in its own way. God has given human beings specific instructions on how they are to worship him. I'm sure you've noticed in your reading that God is quite specific in how the Israelites were to worship him. Secondly, it is not a question of sacrifice versus no sacrifice. In reading about all the various offerings, um, you might in fact get a little uncomfortable reading about the blood and the body parts and the burning and all these different things. So that we sort of want to put sacrifice aside, but it is inescapable. It is never a question of will I sacrifice or won't I? The question is to whom will I sacrifice? And then under this question comes what kind of sacrifice? 
And what we find in scripture, in Leviticus in particular, is that the fallen human beings, the fallen human race, owe their sacrifices to the God of creation. The third thing we saw is that worship is costly. God's people are to be willing to sacrifice their most valuable animals, those without blemish. Now this sounds as though God is asking for far too much. But there is an important principle at work here. We are not the owners of what we have. We are the stewards. These things belong to God. And so if we feel like, well, I don't want to give God my best. It's like, let's back up. It is not yours. It is God's. You are a steward of what God has put in your care. We are dependent by nature. We are creatures. We are not the creator. God is the one who sustains all things, and we look to him to provide our daily bread. So when God calls on his people to offer an unblemished animal, we shouldn't think that this is too much. It is an act of faith in the creator. The fourth thing we saw is the significance of sin. Why make such a big deal about sin? Well, you know, one of the things is that sin brings death. And the sacrificial system sort of beats at home day after day because rather than the person who is giving the sacrifice dying, the animal itself dies in his or her place. Sin is costly. It involves death. Um, and we should not expect to get God's forgiveness on the cheap. Get it at a discount. In Hebrews chapter 9, we read, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. That's how big a deal sin is. Then the last thing we saw last week is that all of this points to the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice. In the words of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the sacrificial lamb. But he's also the lamb of the Passover. Serves a dual role. Uh, when the, the angel of death passed, saw the blood, he passed over. But also, he is the sacrificial lamb. It is this last point that I want us to consider in some detail today. Um, and the first, I think, is what I'll spend the most time on. And that is... Uh, Blood is an important component in the sacrificial system. And therefore it is in the death of Jesus. How could you, how could you miss that? You couldn't miss that. I mean, beginning in verse number 5 of Leviticus 1, he is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons of the priest shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the, side of the, against the altar on all sides at the entrance to the tent of meeting. In Leviticus chapter 4, which is the sin offering, blood is mentioned 14 times. In Leviticus 17, 11, we read, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And when we come to the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, we see that blood is equally important. The apostles mentioned this. When Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, the last time that he would see them, he said, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In 1 Peter chapter 1, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Certainly very Levitical language there. And then Hebrews chapter 13. The high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy place as as a sin offering, but their bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. For some people, this is a rather uncomfortable subject, um, something they would rather not discuss or have mentioned. I've been going through a book Fleming Rutledge, who is a priest in the Anglican Church, and she writes that early in her ministry, she was asked by a good friend, a rector at a church, to speak, to preach on Good Friday at his church. When I arrived at the occasion, she writes, he instructed me that I was not to preach about the blood. Can you imagine preaching on Good Friday and not talking about blood? Um, And I think I might I think I might see people's point if we only have the New Testament. Because if if we only have the New Testament and we talk about the blood of Jesus, we're thinking of the crucifixion, we're thinking about the cruelty of the Romans, the scourging, the crucifixion. Um, But stop and think a minute. The early Christians did not have the New Testament. Uh, Fleming Rutledge writes, their only source for discovering the meaning of the strange death of their Lord was the scriptures they had always known. Imagine the attention with which early Christian leaders searched every syllable of the Hebrew Bible, seeking to understand how the terrible death of the Son of God had been in the mind and plan of God all along. It must have been a very exciting process. Anyone reading Leviticus and thinking of Jesus at the same time could hardly fail to notice a phrase like a male without blemish in the list of stipulations. That is the sort of detail that would jump off the page of the Hebrew scriptures in those first years after the resurrection. So the early church, in the early church, they would see the death of Jesus as a sacrifice, among other things. Uh, They would not see him, I think, as a victim, as a casualty of the Roman occupation or the, you know, the political shenanigans of the religious leaders. They would not see him as a martyr, as someone dying for a cause, as some unfortunate person sort of caught up in the events of history. No, this wasn't their first reaction, as we read in Luke chapter 24, of the two disciples, Cleopas and Mary, as they are walking to Emmaus, um, They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. So they still don't get it at this point. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. But him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, we could say Leviticus, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So they didn't see it right away, but they did come to recognize what was found in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, including Leviticus, and the rest of the Old Testament, what it said about Jesus. This is one of the reasons why, in our reading together as a congregation this year, we've begun in Genesis. And we're going to read the Old Testament first before we read the New Testament. I know there are various systems where you read a chapter in the Old Testament and a chapter in the New Testament and maybe a, a, a psalm. But first of all, when you read a book, you usually read it at, from the beginning to the end. But also, the New Testament will not make sense, as it should to us, if we have not read the Old Testament. I suspect that many people interpret the New Testament with no thought of what the Old Testament says, and therefore they come up with something that is really, it's not completely wrong, but it is lacking some very important aspects. So, we begin with the matter of the blood, that this is very important. But the second is, I think, just as important, and that is the nature of sacrifice. Oftentimes, when we speak of the sacrifice of Jesus, we focus on his death. We say that his death atones or pays for our sins. When theologians talk about the atonement, they have the various arguments, they focus on his death. Some of them focus on the violence of the death, a sacred violence, if you wish. Others who are more out to the fringe see it as a form of child abuse, that God the Father puts God the Son to death. Some, when they speak of the substitutionary death, a nature of his death, that Jesus is our substitute, he dies in our place, he takes our sins on him, he frees us from the liability of our sins, that he suffers on the cross on our behalf. All of these are true. But I would say to you, if you read the epistles, what you will find is that the apostles spend far more time on the resurrection than they do on his death. In Romans chapter 4, Paul writes, He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. See, after all, a dead Jesus is not a saving Jesus. Now, I want to be clear that Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice. Um, Ephesians 5, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children, And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Hebrews 9.26 But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus clearly sacrificed himself. But what is a sacrifice? Without the Old Testament, I think we will construct our own definition our own image of what a sacrifice is. And interestingly enough, 
Oftentimes it has to do with war. When someone, someone sacrifices himself in battle, throws himself on a grenade, you know, he sacrificed himself uh, for his fellow soldiers. But we have the Old Testament before we have the New Testament. So when we read about Jesus' sacrifice in the New Testament, then maybe we should go back to the Old Testament and see what it has to say. And I'm convinced that Leviticus broadens our view of what a sacrifice is. A sacrifice is not merely the killing of an animal. In sacrificing an animal, sometimes their hands would be put on the head as they confess their sins, but the killing of the animal is only at the beginning of the process. There were other things that needed to take place. The animal needed to be cut up, needed to be dismembered. Uh, Parts of the body needed to be washed. Uh, The pieces of the animal had to be arranged on the altar. And some of the pieces were burned. And the smoke ascended up into heaven. We find this, by the way, at least 17 times in the book of Leviticus. An aroma pleasing to the Lord. So you don't just burn it up to burn it up, but it is something that goes up to God as an offering. And then sometimes some of the parts of the sacrifice animal were to be eaten by those who were giving it, and some of it was eaten by the priests and the Levites. When we consider the sacrifice of Jesus we should remember that it not only refers to his death, which was critical, and I I want to make that clear, that Jesus died, that is a part of his sacrifice. Um, But it's much more than that. Um, We need to see that his death is only the beginning, if you wish, of the process. In light of Leviticus, the animal's blood could not be sprinkled unless it was killed. The animal could not be dismembered unless it was killed. And the animal could not be burned on the altar unless it was killed. Death was an essential aspect of sacrifice. So Jesus had to die. But his crucifixion is but the beginning of his ascension. Jesus was raised on a cross. He was a pleasing aroma to the Father. Stop and think a minute. I think this is a familiar passage from John 3. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, the story he's referring to is when there was a plague because of Israel's disobedience, and snakes were biting people and they were dying. God told Moses, make a snake out of brass and put it on a pole. And anyone who looks to it will not die from the snake bite. And Jesus says in the same way that the serpent was raised, the son of man will be raised. And I think if we're not careful, we'll be very narrow in our view and say, well, that's him on the cross. That's Jesus being raised on the cross. But I think it's more than that. It is his ascension that he has gone to be at the right hand of the Father. So it isn't only his death, but it is also his resurrection and his ascension Just as the smoke of the sacrifices in Leviticus are a pleasing aroma to God and wafted up to heaven in the same way Jesus ascended to the Father. Another aspect of sacrifice that is important is that sacrifice did not give one carte blanche uh, to do as he or she pleased. Um, It wasn't something, it wasn't a preventative act. It's like, not like someone would say, here's my, my animal. Oh, and Aaron, by the way, I plan on committing a sin later today, but I want to do the sacrifice now. 
you know, to sort of get it out of the way, and then I, then I can do whatever I want. So obviously, it's not the case. When we think of Jesus and his sacrifice, we shouldn't imagine that Jesus gave his life, he sacrificed himself, so we don't have to. Now, Jesus took care of everything, and so we are free to do as we want. Consider what Jesus told his disciples. And this is even before his crucifixion. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And in that familiar passage in Romans 12:1, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. In Hebrews 13, near the end of the book of Hebrews, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Simply put, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to enable us to offer ourselves as sacrifices. Jesus took up his cross so that we would also take up our cross and follow him. At this point, I, I, I stuck this in at the last minute, but there is this difficult verse in Colossians 1.24 that I think fits in here. Uh, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. It's interesting. It's I would point out several things. First of all, the phrase Christ's afflictions never refers to the cross. Um, Paul speaks of Christ's sufferings in connection with the suffering of the cross, or of the church. So when Jesus is on the cross, that is the beginning, if you wish, of a sacrifice, but it is one that continues. And Leviticus makes that very clear. It's not just the killing of the animal. Ultimately, in some cases, it is the eating of the animal. It is a full process. And so Christ gave his life, and we follow in his steps. We are to live our lives as living sacrifices. Um, this is something, I think, a, the difference between what you find in the Eastern Orthodox and in the Western Church is that the Western Church traditionally has focused only on the cross, seeing that as sort of the end-all and be-all, failing to recognize. Let's go back to Leviticus, and what does Leviticus tell us about the nature of sacrifice? When Paul talks about you know, lack, filling up what is lacking, he is not talking about salvation, but he's talking about the church. That the church and Christ are one. We are the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ, Paul tells us. And so we shouldn't imagine that Jesus died on the cross. Thank goodness we got that out of the way, and now we can sort of go along in our lives. No, the sacrifice, his death on the cross begins there. And it continues now in the life of the church. I think this is why oftentimes those who suffer persecution, those who are martyred for the gospel, have a clearer understanding of the sacrifice of Jesus than we do. We tend to see it as sort of payment, so we get to go out and do what we want. You know, you punch the ticket and now we can have the freedom. And if we mess up, we can, we can confess, but, but otherwise we can do whatever it is that we want. I'm convinced that we would not understand fully, as God would have us, the matter of sacrifice and suffering if we don't have the book of Leviticus. Just will not. 
It doesn't mean it make it makes it easier necessarily to read Leviticus. But now it begins to sort of flesh out what we will see in the New Testament. Now some might say, yeah, I, I don't know that I'm really buying this, that you know, what Paul talks about, you know, filling up the afflictions of Christ. It wasn't Paul a masochist after all, and you know, I think that we can understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. We really don't need the Old Testament or Leviticus. I want to sort of hedge my bet here to say that if someone did not have the Old Testament, they would still have a certain understanding that Christ died in the place of sinners. Um, but we need the Old Testament. We desperately need the Old Testament to fully understand the New Testament and to understand the work of Jesus and his sacrifice. When it comes to blood and atonement and sacrifice, one might say, yeah, I I can look it up in the dictionary, I know what that means. But let's look at one aspect that you can't necessarily look up in the dictionary. You need the Old Testament to understand, and that is the office of high priest. In the book of Hebrews, a book that is written to Jews who had a good understanding of the temple system of worship, Jesus is compared and contrasted with the high priest of the Old Testament. My assumption here is that the office of the high priest that is discussed is that which is described in Exodus and Leviticus, not some position that we might conjure up like, okay, you have all these priests and you're going to put somebody aside. Okay, he's higher than this, so we'll call him a high priest or a higher priest. No, no, this is something that comes from the system that God gave to Moses. As much as we have read about Aaron as the first high priest, we should be pretty confident that what we read about Jesus as our high priest must be understood in the light of what we read in the Old Testament. And I will just give you some comparisons here. The first is that like the former high priest, Jesus was tempted. And so he can sympathize with our weakness. But he was without sin. This is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. In Leviticus chapter 9, We read how the tabernacle was set up and how Aaron and his sons were ordained. And in verse number seven, we read, Moses said to Aaron, come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering to make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people to make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. So Aaron came to the altar and slaughtered the calf as a sin offering for himself. And why? Because he had sinned. He was a sinner. He was not without sin, and therefore he had to offer a sacrifice for his sin. This is not the case with Jesus, our high priest. Secondly, Jesus is our high priest, not because of his ancestry. He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't from the family of Aaron. He's from the tribe of Judah. But on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. This is a phrase we find in Hebrews 7.16. In the Old Testament, only Aaron's descendants could be priests. You have the Levites, and they help with various things, but priests could only come from the line of Aaron, and Jesus certainly doesn't. 
but he is our high priest because he lived an indestructible life. And I must be honest, I don't fully understand what that means. But the reality is, unlike the Old Testament, which was hereditary in nature, we have Jesus who lived a perfect life. Thirdly, the former high priest would die. But Jesus holds his position, if you wish, his priesthood permanently, so he always lives to make intercession. Uh, The writer says, Now there have been many of these priests, or those priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely or forever those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. On Thursday of next week, on the 15th, we will read about the death of Aaron and how his son Eliezer became high priest after him. This is how the system worked. It began with Aaron and then Eliezer and then it went on in their descendants after them. In the case of the resurrected Jesus, he is alive forevermore. He will never be replaced. He will never die. He is our eternal high priest and intercedes for us. The fourth thing we see is that Jesus has no need to offer daily sacrifices, unlike the Levitical priest. In chapter 7, verse 27, unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And then in chapter 10, which is where you are now, if you look at verses 11 and 12, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that is Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The statement he sat down signifies at least two things. First of all, it is a position of power. And secondly, he's finished. The completion of his sacrifice. He can sit down. He doesn't need to stand and keep working. He can sit down. He has completed the work the Father gave him to do. And lastly, we see that Jesus entered the presence of God by his own blood. Here we are in Hebrews chapter 10. Um, Let me see, this isn't another place, but let me read it to you. Uh, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of creation. He's talking about the presence of God being in the presence of God. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place, the presence of God, once for all, by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may, live this, we may serve the living God. What is the writer of Hebrews trying to get at? We need to remember, we need to realize the phrase once for all, which occurs four times in this book, is key. 
As one writer put it, nothing further can be or need be done. Everything has changed now that Christ has made the once for all sacrifice of his own blood, replacing the blood of the sacrificed animals that could have never taken away sin. This action by the Son of God has dramatically altered our situation before God. And there is now no barrier between us and him, since Jesus is our high priest forever. I think the, book of the, the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to address the fears and the insecurities of his readers about their status in relationship to God. There can be real concern, real, a real sense of insecurity. Jesus has died for me. He has given his life as a sacrifice. He has ascended to the Father but I have sinned. I continue to sin. What is to be done? Look, if you would, we're now here in Hebrews 10, verse number 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that's the presence of God, by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. How is it that we can have full assurance of faith? Let me just stop a minute and say, I think oftentimes in our carelessness, we don't even worry about this. We just assume God will forgive us, that's his job. But if we would, in fact, have a sensitive conscience, we would recognize that, why, why, why do I even have the right to talk to God? Why do I come into his presence so easily? We can come with full assurance because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And what is the sacrifice of Jesus? We look to the book of Leviticus, to get a fuller understanding. It's not simply his death, but it is his resurrection, his ascension, and his continuing work in the church by his spirit. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, living in and where, when and where we do, we try to boil down things to the least common denominator to get it as simple as we can. We want bullet-pointed outlines to instruct us in our faith. And when it comes to the precious sacrifice of your Son, we are often tempted to simply look to the cross and, and see it merely as a death, and not as a sacrifice. As difficult as the book of Leviticus is for us to read, we thank you for it and how it fleshes out our understanding of the sacrifice of Jesus. Much of it is beyond our understanding at this point, but it is your word, it is your truth. But from the little that we can see, we can see that his sacrifice is much more than his death.
that his sacrifice is to continue in our lives. We are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. We are to continue by your spirit his work. After all, we are his body. We are his presence in this world. I think we've forgotten that. I think we have reduced your good news to simply getting our tickets punched so we can go to heaven. We won't go to hell. And we have missed out on the glorious good news and how it is to affect every aspect of our lives. I thank you for Sundays, for this day, this first day of a new week that you've set aside that we can learn, we can be reminded, that we can be informed, prepared as we go out to live in the coming days. That we will see our lives not merely as our own, we are stewards after all, not owners. We will not see ourselves as having the right to do whatever we want, but as those who continue the sacrificial work of your Son. In that way, may we be lights in a world of darkness. And may people see the love of Christ in us. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray through Jesus, our high priest, and in his name. Amen.